So, um, I'm going to be reading the passage this morning um, to kick off our sermon. Um, And we are in Revelations, which is what this sermon series is about. And um, the passage I will be reading is Revelations 2, 12 through 17, if you want to follow along. Okay. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We forgot to dismiss our uh, peanut gallery. I know, right? I know. Peanut Gallery, Kid Life, you guys are dismissed. I think students are hanging out here. I'll do my best not to bore our teenagers into uh, a coma this morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, My name is Doug. It's great to be with you. Tim is actually, at this very moment, I think, suffering greatly at something called the Geezer Games. It's a CrossFit competition. And he is a man of a certain age and therefore is competing against other fit people of a certain age, done by age bracket. He was a little anxious. If you can think about him this morning, his general goal for these fitness competitions, just as a goal challenge that he puts in front of him, just to keep his life motivated and interesting, is to not come in last. That's his goal. He wants to be solidly middle of the pack, right? And if you've ever been in a competition... You just don't want to be last. It's a little embarrassing. So you want, to, you want to be solidly middle of the pack. And Tim has, has really competently been middle of the pack. I would say upper, upper end of the middle of the pack uh, for many years now. So I have no doubt that that will happen. But that was kind of uh, playing on his thoughts this morning as he was getting ready. So you can think about him because he's huffing and puffing right now, uh, whatever it is that they're putting him through. But it is great to be with you today as we continue uh, our series in Revelation, uh, it's always a little daunting coming into uh, the book of Revelation because we've all got uh, our own sort of experience, read of, thoughts about Revelation. And so we're taking these little chunks and we're trying to think about Jesus' word to each of the churches. What is he encouraging and challenging the church with? And how is it that we can take that as a church and as individuals and sort of hold on to those uh, encouragements and to those warnings? 
And Matt did a great job of reading our passage today, uh, verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2. A couple of weeks back, we started a series with the first uh, church in Ephesus where they were just encouraged to love. If you were here for that, if you weren't, go back and catch that series, catch the intro. I actually think the intro was extremely helpful in giving some anchor points and some interpretive tools for how to think about Revelation because it's very uh, apocalyptic in nature. So there's lots of imagery, lots of wild things going on, right? And so, you know, it might conjure some memories from the Left Behind movies. You might be traumatized by that like I was. So, you know, just hold on to yourself as you're doing that. But listen to the intro. We talked about faithfulness last week with the church in Smyrna. Today we're talking about truth in the church in Pergamum. And the subtext for this is following God's word, even when it's confusing. We might add the word difficult or challenging. How do we hold on to God's word? How do we hold on to the truth, capital T, when we are besieged on all sides, when outcomes are uncertain, when emotions are high, when there are competing thoughts, competing ideologies, when holding on to the truth of God's word and to our faith in Jesus is unpopular, is a minority opinion, possibly alienates us from the people around us, causes them to form negative opinions about who we are that may or may not be accurate or true? How do we hold on to all of that under trying circumstances? And so like the other churches, if we look at the letters to the other churches in the earlier parts of chapter 2, there's this couplet that takes place. It's a praise and a rebuke. It's an encouragement and it's a challenge that are offered in verses 13 and 14. But before we dive in, let's pray together. Ask God to sort of maybe prepare us a little bit for the word today as we receive it together. Heavenly Father God, Lord, we so desperately want to be people who hold on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, who live our lives and respond out of that truth in uh, really integrous ways. And so we're praying, God, that you would both reinforce the things that need to be reinforced in us and that we would be open to being challenged and pressed And even in this moment, there might be untethered or untamed areas of our lives that we are becoming more consciously aware of, even as we sit in this prayer. And I ask that you'd give us courage, that you would give us conviction, and that you would speak to us uh, in those places uh, where we need to attend ourselves more completely to you, Lord. And that we would do that, that beautiful work this morning. Thanks, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a praise and a rebuke happening in 13 and 14. We'll go back over it here in a moment. But I wanted to offer a little bit of background as to what was going on in the midst of this praise and rebuke couplet that we see in Pergamum regarding the truth. 
So Pergamum was a capital city. It was a major sort of metropolitan place uh, in Asia Minor, known particularly for idol worship. They were really well known for being a pluralistic uh, city where you had access to whatever it is that you wanted to have access to, right? A lot of major metropolitan centers were kind of like this. You've got streams of people coming in from a variety of places, and as they sort of create community and find themselves in their little enclaves, one of the expressions of that would be uh, their idols and their worship and their temples and the things that they uh, prescribe to. And so Pergamum was no different. There were uh, temples, uh, several temples dedicated to different Greco-Roman gods. Uh, and the center of this monument, uh, like any major city, was a, a, an altar to the emperor at the time, a guy named Domitian. Right? And so here there was this city, and back behind the city center, there was this famous sort of hill. And at the top of the hill was the temple or the, the uh, artifact to Domitian. And then around it were all these other temples. So this was kind of like, you know, the temple hill that you could go to. And whether, wherever you wanted to worship or whatever you wanted to worship, it was like this incredible sort of mega outdoor mall for whatever it is that you wanted to worship. And so you could go there, and if you wanted to pay homage to the emperor, you could do that there. If you wanted to pay homage to a particular god, you could do that there, whether you were looking for power or fortune or love, whatever it was. This is kind of how the pagan gods operated, and this is how they continue to operate in the world today, is whatever it is that you were needing in your life, you could go to that temple or to that place offer prayers or sacrifices or gifts to that particular God and that they would meet a particular need that you had in your life, uh, whatever it is that was going on. And so we meet then this, this martyr that's mentioned in the passage, a man named Antipas, who was a Christian martyr under Domitian, who was uniquely cruel, sort of narcissistic, harsh ruler, kind of typical of the movie versions that you maybe have seen if you think about gladiators and the torturing of people and kind of the grotesque nature of of leadership at that time. And one of the rules of the city of the Roman Empire was to pay homage to the emperor. And in order to do that, Antipas would have been taken to the center of that hill behind the city, taken to the place of worship where they had uh, an altar built to Domitian, and he would have been asked to offer incense and to declare Caesar is Lord, to pay homage. This is what you have to do. You've got to bend the knee to the emperor, and then you can live freely in our society. You can do whatever you want, right? This was sort of the entry ticket into sort of the city, into the life of this diverse, uh, you know, populated place was bend the knee to Domitian. And Antipas refused. Because the gospel of Jesus was ringing in his ears. And he said, there's no other name 
accept Jesus, that I want to declare a Lord over my life. And I can pay Caesar what's due Caesar, but I'm going to give Jesus what's due Jesus. And you can imagine sort of the economy of what was going on in Antipas's mind. He's like, I know what's going to happen if I refuse to bend the knee. And if he's human, and if he's just a guy worshiping Jesus, he's doing the math in his mind, right? He's wondering, gosh, if I, why don't I just do this, right? I could just do it. It could be meaningless, right? I don't have to believe what I'm saying. I could just say the words, do the thing, go about my day, live my life for Jesus, maybe affect change through longer life. And yet in his heart of hearts, he says, I know maybe I'll regret that the rest of my existence. And I don't know that I want to live that way. Whatever the internal conversation was, right? Maybe not unlike the one Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gosh, this does not look like an awesome path, God. If we could do this any other way, I'd love to talk about that. He said, no, this is the path. And we might even argue in a beautiful moment, Antipas felt a sense of call to do what he did. A sense of inspiration, we hope, that the Holy Spirit would have given him in that moment to not bend the knee and then be martyred in some horrific variety of ways, right? And so this is what we see. This incredibly tense, high-priced place where Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum, you have been true to my name. like our brother Antipas, a martyr in your city. This is the context of truth. And he says this in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know where you live. I know what it's like. I have seen it with my own eyes. I have been there. I've walked its streets. I have sensed the spiritual conflict and the energy of this place, and it is bad. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You see that little bookend statement? It's a powerful one that would not have been missed. He says it twice, where Satan lives. He says, this is a place where... The devil has a foothold. This is not a holy city. This is not a spiritual city. This is a dark, dark place. And they feel it every day. They walk the streets. They go about their business just doing regular stuff, secular stuff, and they feel it. Oh, my gosh, this place is sucking the spiritual life and vitality out of me because I am constantly being surrounded by message after message that has nothing to do with the gospel. And it's not neutral, friends. It's an attack. It's an assault upon our faith. 
the diversity of faith, but also the words that speak against the way of life that we want to be about. What stands out here for me as we look at this, this couplet, the praise, you've you've been faithful to my name, you've been true to my name, is what happens next in verse 14. This is really abrupt, this phrase, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you, right? That feels very polite, but it's such a stark contrast. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And likewise, you also uh, have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Right? And the Nicolaitans simply were just a, a sex cult. Right? This was just hedonism, uh, sort of run amok uh, in the worship of the Nicolaitans. So there was this overt and ongoing breaking of at least three of the Ten Commandments, right, that they would have all been kind of keenly aware of, right? There are no other gods, no idols, and no adultery, and they would have been breaking sort of persistently all of these things. So you have a portion of the church that is remaining true and faithful and holding fast, and then you've got a group among them who are finding themselves, you know, in a wayward place, And the basic message of the seven letters um, that are attested pose this question, what is the nature of your love for me, Jesus is asking. Do you love me enough? Do you love me in this way? The church in Ephesus was, you know, talking about love. Will you put me first above all other loves? Do you have it in you to do that? In Smyrna, will you do crazy things for me? Will you suffer to the point of death? Will you remain faithful to me, even at the cost of your own life and the church in Pergamum? Will you hold fast and embrace the words that are coming out of my mouth, even if it costs you everything? It's a test of truth. So four things I want to tease out as we think about this beautiful couplet. Four truths about truth. And the first one is this. A truth about holiness. As we hold on to holiness, any test of truth is also a test of our desire to live holy lives. To live set-apart lives. Whether we are the ones setting ourselves apart or we're being pushed apart, right, by the forces around us. That's another way that that happens, right? We get forced into isolation. We get forced into our spaces and places because of the conditions of our context or where we are, right? So when we think about holiness, this is the hard word about holiness. Partial holiness is not holiness, Partial holiness is not holiness. How much unholiness does it take to make something not holy? How much unfaithfulness does it take to make something unfaithful? Maybe by definition, we see that any sort of margin of disobedience any sort of wandering outside of the boundaries of the holiness 
that we are called to is a kind of unholiness that's taking place. And that's maybe the subtext of what is being said in verse 16, where it says, Repent, therefore. Repent, therefore. I see your unholiness. I see you being tempted and pressured and pushed outside of the place that I've called you to live. And you've not gotten there by accident. You've gotten there by a series of truth claims that you made along the way, right? This is death by a thousand cuts. You've gotten there and you're not giving me all of you. And when you're giving me uh, part of you, you might as well give me none of you. And this is the nature of the gospel. This is an all or nothing kind of situation. This is not a, you know, I'm just dabbling in my faith. We don't play church. We don't practice, right, in the way that maybe we might think. We're here in this deeper kind of uh, commitment and claim to following Jesus. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. And so uh, the writer's saying, don't congratulate yourself because you're faithful over here. And then over here, you're a mess. And we don't know what you're doing and who you are and what you're about, right? Don't congratulate yourself that you're living in these two places. In fact, uh, one of the most uh, famous passages, 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you can recite this because it's on a, on a you know, piece of artwork in your bathroom. <laughs> Verse 3 says, If I give all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Right? I can do it all. I can make the most supreme sacrifice. But if I don't have all love, if I have not all in in my faith, then that sacrifice is meaningless. What a powerful statement. If I deliver my body to the flames, some versions will say. That might have happened to Antipas, right? If I deliver my body to the flames, that act could be meaningless if the condition of my heart is not all in with Jesus. Are you with me? You can do it all. You can quote-unquote have it all and have nothing at the same time. Man, if that isn't scary, I don't know what is. Right? This is the truth claim about the gospel. If we're going to keep some commandments to the death, but on the other hand, we're going to be responsible, I'll call ourselves modernists, on the other hand, then maybe we need to reconsider how it is that we're following Jesus. So simple example. There's something in the passage that talks about going to idol feasts. This is Balaam and Balak, and and people are being tempted uh, into eating food sacrificed to idols and then sort of tempted into sexual immorality. There's this whole sort of slippery slope thing happening in the midst of the passage. And an invitation to an idol feast uh, was simple. It would have been a major gathering 
of important people usually having to do with some kind of economic, political, social uh, interest in advantaging or moving up ourselves, to say no to an invitation to an idol feast would have been career killing. Are you with me? Have you had this feeling? We're out in the world, you're in your job, you're in the marketplace, you get an invitation to something, all the bigwigs are going to be there, it's a black tie event, it's expensive, it's $500 a plate, yada, 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 and you're thinking, man, I've got to go to that. And somebody high on the food chain, you don't even know their name, but you see their email tag, and you're like, oh, that person's important. And they've invited you, and they say, you've got to go to this thing. you're like, oh, man, but that's just like, I've heard about those parties. It's just a bunch of executives getting drunk and getting crazy and spending whatever budget there is. And I don't really need to be a part of that. And yet here I am, stuck in this place. That's what an idol feast would have felt like. Come to this party at my invitation. Come sit at my table. Come to my room. Come to my suite. Whatever it is. You know all the bad things are going to be going down there. But man, if I don't go, I might as well just commit career suicide. You ever been there? Gotten that invitation? Tried to figure out how to to go but not go? How to say no, but not totally say no. Right? We've got to massage that situation. That's the invitation that we're receiving. I had such an invitation. I remember I was in college. This is a funny story. I don't think I've ever told this one. Um, and uh, I remember I was in college. I was, I was interning at a, at a financial firm. I know it's, it's a short-lived and, and terrible uh, career move on my part, but... <laughs> Um, I, was, I was interning at a financial firm, and there was a guy there, and he was great. We, 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 you know, we were playing roller hockey together, and he was getting married, and we were all really thrilled for him, because he was a fantastic guy. And, uh, and he sat there, and he laid down this, this invitation. He says, hey, I want you to come to my bachelor party, and if you come to my bachelor party, I'll come to your church. That was the deal. Right? Woo! Talk about idle feasts, man. This is a tough one. And it would have been fine, right? Bachelor party would have been, I, I probably could have rolled to a bachelor party, sure, celebrate the guy, no big deal, wish him well, leave. But his bachelor party was going to be at a strip club. Because this was, you know, it was the 90s, right? These <laughs> were wild times. And I was old enough to go to a strip club legally, right? I wasn't going to be sneaking in. Right? But I'm like, I can't go to a strip club with you, man. Right? I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was just a guy in the church. Right? But I was a leader. And I was somebody, you know, people sort of looked to and they knew about. Right? But it was tough. And I had some buddies who ended up going, God bless them, <laughs> who were like, oh, you should come. It's no big deal. He'll come to church afterwards. Isn't that kind of like evangelism? I'm telling you, there was some mental gymnastics going on. Granted, our brains were not fully formed. Right? Jesus hung out with sinners and prostitutes. 
He wasn't drinking with them, bro. Are you going to get up there and declare the gospel? If you do that, then I'll go. But don't sit in the chair and whatever it is. That you're, don't eat hot wings and think you're doing a good job. So you see what I'm saying? The temptation is real. Hopefully it's cut and dried like that for you. Don't go, please. If you do, come and talk to me. We'll pray together. And we'll have hot wings some other place. Right? This is where the challenge of our faith happens. Maybe it's not as overt as that. Maybe it's not as simple or cut and dried. But we live in a society that has competing views to what we believe. But we have to live in that world. Are you with me? We have to live in that world. We've got to work in that world. We've got to eat in that world. We've got to do whatever it is that we do inside of that world. And yet there is a boundary of our holiness that we must protect at all costs because it is the vital expression of who we are in Jesus. And it matters absolutely, friends. It matters absolutely. Because at the end of your days, when the great equalizer of life enters in, all we have to hold on to is the truth of who we are and what we believe and what we know and what we hold fast to. The rest of that stuff doesn't help us at all. So we work that out. And Jesus says, I come and I bring the sword of truth, the double-edged sword in his mouth. Ephesians 6 refers to that as the, root of the word of God. This sharp sword that comes and is so sharp it separates muscle from tendon. I mean, this is, this is, this is a sharp, sharp, accurate knife right? that Jesus wants to use in our lives to bring about a holiness that you and I maybe are uncomfortable with. And if we go down and we use this picture of the armor of God, we think about the belt of truth that we fasten around our waist. Some of you are familiar with this passage. It goes across, there's a shield of faith, the belt of truth, and the belt is not a belt, right? I'm wearing a belt because I'm holding my pants up, but this is actually more like a girdle. If you think about the armor that you're putting on, this is a girdle that protects your body, right? The most sensitive parts of your body, and you're going to pay close attention to the girdle, friends, right? I want this thing to fit. I want it to work. Jesus enters in and demands that we surrender and protect and bring truth to the most vital parts of ourselves. Maybe the parts of us that we might want to have be secret. Maybe the things that we don't want to have exposed or laid bare. I think it's the number one reason why most men don't go to the doctor is because they would rather be ignorant than be healthy. I hear that time and time again. I don't want to go. Why? It's going to be awkward. Awkward? That's the thing that's keeping us from living longer in the land. That's what's keeping us from our vitality. That's what's keeping us 
from our holiness and awkwardness about talking and doing things that we are uncomfortable with. Friends, if we're talking about the holiness that is about life and death and meaning and purpose and value and worship, it undergirds everything that we are about. Awkwardness needs to go out the window, friends. And we need to move into those spaces and places. The second thing, quickly, this other truth, not only about holiness, but the truth about truth, right? We, we're a society that uh, wants to make truth into something less than it actually is. Uh, and this is another tough thing because I think mo- as modernists and as modern people, uh, there's this great temptation to sort of slide into the argument that whatever we think is true is true for us. Whatever's true for me is true for me. Whatever's true for you is true for you. And that's all good. And that's all gravy. And that's fine until it's not fine. Are you with me? Because if we break that down in its simplest form and we start to unpack what that might actually mean, right? Truth with a lowercase t. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. That all comes down to sort of the seat of our feelings. It's how we feel about whatever it is that we're holding on to. And sadly, uh, you can hold on to whatever you hold on to, and then when you run into the truth with the capital T, you know, you're going to have problems. You're going to end up with existential crisis. Because what you think is true and what you might believe is true might not actually be true. And that's hard for us. That's hard for me. When you run into those people because you want to love them, and it's not loving to let people live in something that is not true. That's hard. It is not loving, and it's not simple, and it's not easy. But we live in a society, again, that wants to push us into a version of truth, into an ideology around truth that makes truth very flexible, right? And that's a very hard place to live because we want to be rooted and grounded in things that are true with a capital T. Because when life hits and when difficulty comes and truly disorienting things happen in our lives, the anchor that holds us fast has to be truth with the capital T. Or really in a different kind of crisis, right? If we are to distill the truth of the Bible and of the gospel down to its simplest facts, our truth is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he was born and lived, was persecuted, killed and buried, and on the third day he rose again and exalted to the right hand of the Father. That is our truth. That is our creed. And the necessary thing that flows out of that truth, if we ascribe to that truth, if we're convicted about that truth, the necessary thing is to follow that truth with a capital T. Are you with me? It is not just about the name that we must hold fast to. It is the faith condition that follows. It says, I've got to follow that guy, Jesus, all the days of my life. And I'm going to hold that truth inside of me. 
And that, friends, is not a partial commitment. That is a whole commitment to holiness and to the truth about truth with a capital T. We have to talk about the truth about freedom. I just want to unpack this briefly. Oftentimes, we want to sort of follow other things because they think we think that they're going to make us feel better or they're going to solve some problem that we have in our lives, right? This is one of the great temptations uh, that we find ourselves in over and over again. In the context of this letter, freedom can only be attained through the boundaries of truth. The narrowness of truth is what brings us freedom, right? Jesus talks about a narrow gate and a big gate. And the big gate looks really inviting because we think of the big gate. And if you're leaving like SoFi Stadium, you want to go out the big gate, man, because you want to get out of there as quickly and as fast as you can. You want to go to the big exit with all the cars and the big streets that you can get on the freeway and get out of Dodge because it's going to take you hours to do that mess. And Jesus says, no, no, friends. The way you need to go is through the narrow gate. That's the one that actually brings you freedom. The freedom of narrowness is something that we struggle with because we are, again, modern, enlightened, sort of people of culture. Broadness is what brings freedom. And Jesus says, no, broadness is not what brings freedom. Verse 17 says this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. And the hidden manna simply is Jesus. Manna in the Old Testament was bread that fell out of the sky to provide for people in their starvation in the wilderness. And they didn't know when it was coming, but when it came, it arrived, and boom, there it was just in time. I will give some of the hidden madden. And here's the truth about this. Obedience will never make sense until you have already obeyed. This is the difficulty of the gospel where the rubber meets the road, I think. And I have this conversation with people all the time, right? I want to have faith. I want to have faith. I want to have faith. I want to do what God wants me to do, but I just need to know what that is, right? I need to know what I'm supposed to do before I do it. I need to be fully convinced that this is the way that I should go. In fact, I want proof that this is the way God is leading me to go, and I kind of need to know what the landing area is before I jump. And if you have lived with the Lord longer than 37 seconds, you realize that, my friends, is not how this exchange takes place. The step of faith is always one of faith. And you do not know whether you will see the face of Jesus on the other side of that in the way that you desire until you get there. Are you with me? You ever make that decision? Man, I don't know how this is going to go. It doesn't always line up the way that it needs to line up. The outcomes don't always seem like the outcomes that we anticipate They never seem to go the way that we think they're going to go. And we can have all the plans and all the aspirations that we want, but God is constantly changing the narrative because, friends, he's not interested in the same things you and I are interested in. He doesn't care about the outcomes that you and I often care deeply about. 
He cares about the formation of your soul. He cares about your willingness to trust him. He cares about your willingness to obey even when obedience is difficult. When it's costly. When it's full of faith. And not just a baby step. And he will not meet you with the hidden manna until after you've gone there. And if you look back on your life, you just spend a couple of seconds and you think about the, the history that you've had with Jesus and you start to think about the major decisions that you made in your life that made all the difference in the world. Are you with me? And you look back on those decisions and you go, man, did I have it all figured out? Did I know how this was going to go? Did I know it was going to lead down this path? And you go, no, I had no idea what was going to come next. I just did what I thought was best to the Lord and best to me in that moment. And here we are on this wild adventure. We never seem to know. This is the hidden manna, friends. The hidden manna of meeting Jesus in the most profound ways because of obedience, because of decisions full of faith, full of prayer, full of hopefulness. We want to know so badly. We're good modern people. We need answers. We want evidence. We want to know how it's going to go. We want to believe that we're in control somehow. And this is not the economy of our faith. We hold to the truth and we walk in it. And the freedom comes when we walk in the narrowness. Oh man, the Nicolaitans, just a brief word about them. We'll talk more about this next week. The sex cult of the Nicolaitans literally means the destroyer of people. Is the destroyer of people. There are things in the world around us that only desire destruction. And yet we're trapped in them. We're walking in them. They're around us all the time. We cannot tread lightly or easily around those things. Ignoring the truth brings harm to us. This is the freedom that we're invited into. I know where you live, he says, where Satan has his home. There is a necessary narrowness in the way that we must live our lives because we live in a society that is not belong to the Lord. It belongs to Satan. And we're L.A. adjacent. We're Orange County adjacent. We are not immune to these forces, friends. But we got to wake up every day aware that those forces don't want to bless us. They don't want to honor us. They want to rip us away from the Lord that we worship. And there is a need for a kind of spiritual simplicity that we must abide by and live into, right? In order to follow Jesus effectively and to recognize that there are boundaries there that we must not cross and we have to decide and resolve inside of ourselves with the Lord that we will not cross those things, right? even if that temptation comes along. And we'll wrap with this thought. Not just the truth about holiness, not just the truth about truth, the truth about freedom, but the truth about Jesus. We must have a larger vision of ourselves in order to buy into this, right? We must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And in order to follow him, that's not just an intellectual exercise, we have to have an experience of Jesus himself. 
and it's one that we must reference time and time again in order to move toward what brings us freedom and away from what harms us. And I think this is something, a process of holiness, a process of spiritual change that happens seasonally, even moment by moment, you know, in each rhythm of our lives, we have to keep going back to this well of Jesus, back to this conviction about who he is, who he says he is, who he calls us to be, so that we can continuously find acceptance and meaning, purpose and value in that commitment and recommitment to live the life that we are called to live even as these other forces that look like appetizing good, beautiful things begin to tear at the fabric of who it is that we are called to be. There's an ongoing commitment and recommitment that we need to make. And one that that we talk about all the time, I'll just autobiographically and and sort of generally, uh, one of the great temptations is uh, sports. It's one of the great wrestlings of my faith as a, as, a, as a pastor and as a dad of kids who play sports. I wrestle with this all the time because growing up, uh, before I had kids and before they played sports, I thought to myself, gosh, I'm never going to be one of those parents whose kids play sports every Sunday and we worship at the altar of volleyball. Are you with me? Right? I'm never going to be one of those parents who's streaming my kid's volleyball game at church because I don't want to worship at the altar of volleyball. And yet, when is volleyball played? Anytime they darn well please. In fact, I looked at next year's calendar. We're supposed to be in Las Vegas, Sin City, playing a volleyball tournament on Easter Sunday. (laughs) What? Who put this calendar together? Who put this calendar together? I'm going to find that person and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to be there. We're busy. What's wrong with you people? And we think, oh, it's like, a, it's like a celebration. Pro football players play on Thanksgiving. They play on Christmas. They pay those guys millions of dollars. You can make them play whenever you want them to play. But we're not going to Vegas on Easter Sunday and Good Friday and worshiping at the altar of volleyball in Las Vegas. But it struck me in that moment, friends. It struck me. The secular nature of the world that we live in. Somebody put that calendar together and they had no clue, even though Easter is on every single calendar printed in the common era of humanity since the dawn of time. It's there. And they ignored it. They ignored it, friends. They did not bother to care about the holiest day that we have on the calendar. It is the day that holds the gospel together, and I say this every year, if Jesus did not rise on the third day, you and I should just go home. Because all of this will have been meaningless. 
It is the one truth that we must hold. And yet, somebody somewhere decided that volleyball was going to be more important on that day than what everybody else needed to be doing. And it feels like a small thing, friends, but it is not. It is one bit of ground that you and I must decide we will hold sacred for Jesus or we will let fall into the abyss of all the other things that must be worshipped on any given Sunday. And there is a boundary that we have to have. And it is out of that narrowness and out of that boundary that we find freedom. I had a professor, I'll close with this thought, I had a professor, Mick Borsmai, and I don't even know what he taught. He taught this class on pastoral preparedness. Anyway, it was, it was sort of a weird non-class, but he had this great saying because he was a farm guy. And he says, man, you know, a lot of people don't like fences because they think fences are all about keeping us hemmed in, right? We don't like fences and walls and boundaries. And he just sat there and he kind of scratched his head. He said, well, we don't have fences to keep our animals in. We have fences to keep the evil out. We don't have fences to keep our animals in. We have fences to keep the predators out. And I've held on to that all these years. And I go back to it as I think about this today. Narrowness, what feels like narrowness, actually gives us life. Gives us real life. And if we hold on to that truth, And if we obey, even when it's unpopular, even when it's confusing, even when it's difficult, even when it makes us look old school and regressive and traditional and dumb, that, my friends, is what brings freedom. And maybe the old ways are the good ways. Maybe we've been right all along. And in all of our cleverness, we haven't figured out how to honor Jesus any better. And that by holding to what is true, we can find real freedom. Let's pray together.